If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to uh, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to spend some time. We, we are uh, in this short series before we begin the book of Romans uh, called Together We Are. And it's a series about uh, the church. And, and if you're new here, this is a great time for you to be here to figure out like what is, what is the vision and values? What, what do we mean when we say we exist for the glory of God and the joy of all people? How does that actually flesh itself out? So if you're new, this is a great you know, five-week series for you in that uh, for the rest of us, if you've been around a while, this is kind of a recalibration, a reminder. Oh yeah, that's the kind of church we want to be. That's where we're aiming to go. And so together we are. And so today I want to continue to talk about just, just God's heart for uh, the, what's happening here in the local church. Um, and so uh, share a little bit about my journey. Uh, when, when I became a believer now 28 years ago or so, 1993, um, I, uh, I was uh, a new believer. I, I was on fire, uh, but I, I did not know uh, what the word discipleship was. I didn't know that there should be discipleship. I, I knew that I probably should go to church. Uh, and so I did that two or three times a, a month. And uh, then I would, I would go. Um, well, what I did find, which was a blessing in one sense, is I, I was delivering pizza. I was going to Arapahoe Community College. I was driving around Littleton. I was delivering pizzas. And I discovered Christian radio. And I'm not talking about Christian radio today. That's just K-Love and bad music. I'm talking about good, uh, like kind of solid teaching, uh, like from sermon to sermon. Uh, and, and I was just like soaking it in. And, and radio call-in shows. And, and I would listen to R.C. Sproul and Chuck Swindoll. And, and then Family Life Today and Adventures of Odyssey. Yeah, I was 19. Listening to Adventures of Odyssey is awesome. And, and so... Uh, I, I would do that every, every night, every night that I worked at least uh, for like two years. Uh, and, and I kind of went to church and uh, it was a good church, but, but my, I, I kind of would just show up as a 19-year-old single dude not knowing anyone. Uh, and, and I knew they were doing uh, good things. I knew they had good ministries and they had Strategic Servant Sunday, but I, I never really felt like, man, I, uh, that I should get plugged into that. I'm good. I'm pursuing the Lord. I'm learning a lot. And um, I was. But, 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 but that, that learning about God and the things of God, uh, even though often in Western church we, we consider that discipleship, it, it, is a, it is a stunted discipleship. If you think your Christianity only in, in, involves uh, getting to know more information about God, then you haven't really understood the information that you're studying <laughs> because there is so much more to it. So it, it produces something in us when we only think of Christianity cerebrally instead of uh, our, our whole being. And, that, and that, that was what was happening to me. So I was learning a lot. I was uh, trying to follow and obey. And that created kind of a pharisaical spirit in me where I would kind of look around at my friends and, and people around me and, and I, would, uh, I would feel either pride uh, I, I, would, I would look around and say man they're not, they're not, they're not leveling up to, to where I'm at now they're, they're doing things that I used to do they're, they're not doing they're, they're, you know, they're hanging out with the wrong Like I, there, there would be this pride of self-righteousness because I had uh, read this word and I was like I'm going to do that I'm going to obey that and, and that would begin to stir in me and, and if it wasn't pride it was shame because even by my own standards that I was building up in my own mind, I would fall short of those. I would sin and uh, I would feel terrible about myself. And, and I would hear the voice of the enemy saying, look at what you did. Who do you think you are? You call yourself a Christian. 
and just that voice of condemnation. And I just kind of lived in this space, and I, I, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I transferred to CSU, and uh, I, I didn't get involved in a local church there. I didn't really even go to a campus ministry there. But, but I was still trying to follow Jesus. I was reading my Bible, saying my prayers, disconnected from community. Well, one Sunday I decided to come back down to my, my local church here in Denver, and uh, I was there, and they, they just happened to mention that they were having a men's retreat in the fall. And by the way, we are too, October 1st through 3rd, so sign up for that now. Um, you can do that on your phones right now. Um, but they were having a men's retreat, and I didn't know anyone, but I thought, for whatever reason, I thought, you know, I should probably go to this. It's in Estes Park. It's not far from CSU, and so uh, I signed up, and, and when I went there, I discovered something that absolutely, um, absolutely changed my pursuit of Jesus. It absolutely changed my view of what it means to be a disciple. I discovered this key truth that I want to show you today, that the, that, that, that the church, the church is not a place, but a people. The church is not a place, but a people. And so in this men's retreat, I don't know anyone, but, but we're gathered together and the men begin to ask me questions. They begin to get, get to know me. And for the first couple of years of my Christianity, I didn't really know anyone else in the church. They began to get to know me. I began to get to know them. I was known and I know. And so they began to kind of encourage me, support me, pour into me. And there in particular, there was the pastor of missions and evangelism, Pastor Keita Andrews. He began to get to know me. And afterwards, he would continue to reach out to me. And when he'd come up to Fort Collins, he'd reach out to all the students from that church and have us over. And he he, he just began to increasingly, increasingly, increasingly pour into me. And so when I uh, had this growing, deepening relationship with, with the church, uh, when, when, the, when the pride would rise up, when, when the self-righteousness would rise up, Pastor Keita would, 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 would remind me, Mark, your righteousness is not based on your behavior, but on the blood of Jesus Christ alone. I'm like, oh, amen. So you've got two more. And then there'd be other times where, where I had stumbled and fallen and I was feeling shame and condemnation and Keto would remind me, Mark, your righteousness is not based on your performance, but on the blood of Jesus Christ alone. And so it, this relationship began to grow and, and his passion for mission and evangelism, that was kind of downloaded to me as a passion of mine. Uh, but more than anything else in that relationship and then in growing relationships with others in the church was this, this gospel centrality, uh, this, this love for Jesus, this hope only in the, the, the mercy and grace of Jesus. And that became core to me. That, that, that has freed me from, from legalism, uh, that freed me from uh, self-condemnation. It's, it's still there. I still have to remind myself. It's why I continue to give myself to the church because as we gather and as we sing these songs and as we come to this table, I am reminded that my righteousness is not based on my performance, but on the blood of Jesus Christ alone. When you look at the Bible, especially in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament, there is a lot of ink spilled about how we are to love God vertically. But there is also a lot of ink, perhaps even more in the New Testament, of how we are to love one another horizontally. How we are to engage with the church. The church. 
Um, but in our culture, uh, if you look at the view of, uh, of the church in the New Testament, and uh, there's no one passage you can go to. Uh, in fact, if you, even today, I, risk, I run the risk of teaching on the church from a passage that, that will only give you part of the story. But there's over 30 metaphors for the church in the New Testament. Um, and, and each one of them says something about what it means to be an authentic uh, church of, of God's people. But, but if you begin to study that, and then you compare kind of what's happened in church in America over the last 20 years or so, by and large, the, those two visions of what the church is, the biblical one and the American church, seem to be in different worlds. That they are worlds apart. In short, they, they are, uh, to use a term that my wife used in her book, Enough About Me, that there is a difference between meology, uh, a man-centered theology, and theology, uh, a God-centered theology. And somewhere along the line, probably about 25, 30 years ago, churches discovered, I think from a good heart, how are we going to reach people? Uh, they, they, they came up with a, a kind of a seeker-sensitive model, that there's all these seekers out there, and therefore we, we must do whatever we can to reach them. But that kind of morphed into a, a, a me-centeredness in the church. And so uh, the church learned, hey, you know what we need to do to reach people? At first, I think it was to reach people, but then I think it's just really, how, how do we fill a room. Well, well, we fill a room because, but, but by putting on a really, really good show. And so uh, we'll, we'll fill the room by, uh, do, you need, do you need fog machines and lasers? We'll put those in the room. Uh, do you need, uh, I mean, I said bounce houses last week, uh, but uh, do, do you need, uh, maybe, maybe you just need uh, something that really speaks to you. So you leave every week just feeling really encouraged about who you are. Uh, maybe you need something really practical. And so we're like, okay, we're going to come up with something to really help these people out. And they're like, Pastor, we need, we need help with our money. I'm like, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to do a new series. It's going to be called Debt is Dumb. And I'm going to talk about how, how debt is dumb, that, that you shouldn't spend more than you make because that's dumb. And then Aaron's going to come up here and he's going to have a special song for the series. It's called Debt is Dumb. And he's going to sing, Debt is Dumb. If you have four dollars and you spend seven, that's dumb. And we're going to be like, yes, debt is dumb. And I'm going to come up and I'm going to pray. And I'm going to say, Father, we thank you that you've shown us that debt is dumb. So help us to not go into debt this week. And then we're going to give you bumper stickers and you're going to go out, debt is dumb, bumper stickers. And you're going to be like, awesome. And there's something in us that's like, yes, that's what I need. But here's the deal with, with that. That's not, ultimately not what you need. Because what if, what, if it's a, what if it's a super practical thing on marriage or, or finances or something like that, and we give you all the path, the, all the real practical things, and you still struggle financially, you still struggle relationally, aren't you then more tied up? Aren't you more uh, condemned after that? What, what you don't need is debt is dumb. You need to see that Jesus is worth everything, and, and his lordship is over all. And so, I, I'm getting off topic here for a little bit, but... Uh, we put on a show. We put on a show. But in the end, that kind of church, that kind of church that is only meant to make you feel good, to, to send you out of here just feeling like you're the, the hero, in the end, that's not going to produce a kind of joy, a kind of depth in your discipleship that, that will love God and love people well, that will go and conquer the world for Jesus. And here's, hear me when I say this. We want more for you than that. 
We want more for you than that. The Bible wants more for you, you than that. God wants more for you than that. He wants you to love God and love people. He, he wants you to lay your da- life down for the sake of the church. See, in that other model, there is this deal that happens. And the deal is we'll we'll hire a bunch of professionals to do the ministry. And and the deal is you just give money. And and if we work this out, we'll make the money. We'll be real professional and slick. And you don't have to do any ministry. And we certainly won't call you to any sacrifice. We won't call you to lay down your life. We won't call you to take up your cross and follow Jesus. But Jesus says, yes. My people take up the cross. They follow me for the glory of God and the joy of all people. So we want more for you. So the question is, what is the church? And, and on the surface, it's, a, it's an easy question. But, but then when you actually start to answer it, like I said, the Bible has a lot to say about the church. So, so uh, take these verses, for example. Romans 16.3. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Greet also the church that meets in their house. So, so the church is, is, is a gathering of, uh, of believers that come together and they, they meet in this house together. And in 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now it's not just a house, but it's a, it's a city. So it's the whole city. You might say the church in Parker. So sometimes I'll say, do you know how many churches are in Parker? I'll say based on this, there's one church in Parker. We just happen to meet in, in different locations. Or, or take Acts 9, 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. That's regional. Judea, Galilee, Galilee, Samaria. That's like the church in Colorado, the church in America, church in North America. Uh, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, the second half. He says, called to be saints together with all those who in, with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ both their Lord and ours. So with all those in every place. So there's a church universal. So, so we, we know this. We, we even prayed about it this morning. We prayed for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan because they are our church family in a sense. So, so this is what, what theologians might call the church universal. And, and the church universal always everywhere throughout time has at least three things in common uh, that they do. And, and if they aren't doing these things, they aren't really uh, a church. So he, here's the church universal. They consistently gather together for the worship of God. So uh, you can go to, you can probably even go to places in Afghanistan in secret right now. They are gathered together and they are, even in the midst of what they're going through, worshiping God. Number two, uh, they consistently gathers together to love, nurture, build one another up. So, so this, this is time to, to, to encourage one another, exhort one another. This is where the church gathers for the, the, right, uh, the right teaching of God's word and the right application of God's ordinances being baptism and communion. If you don't have, uh, this, this is where the reformers all agreed on, and which is amazing because they didn't always agree on a lot of stuff, but they agreed. For it to be an authentic church, there has to be the right proclamation of the word and the right or- administration of the ordinances, baptism and communion. And so uh, th- these are present. And we love and nurture and build one another up. And number three, the church scatters, after it gathers, it scatters to love the world and to share the gospel. 
I, I would add a, a fourth one in this, in the sense that the church balances these three things. And a church that does not balance these things gets off course pretty quickly. So, so if we're all about the worship of God, we're all about coming here, but we're not building one another up, we're not coming to the word, and we're not getting scattered to the nations, that church will be stunted in its growth. Hey, if we're all about scattering and we're going to serve our neighbors, we're going to serve the world, but we're never going to gather, we're never going to worship together, we're never going to support and encourage each other, we will burn out as a church. And so, rightly done, the church universal balances these things. That's what it means to be a church. And you can, uh, I've done it in places like Thailand and the Philippines and um, in Europe, all over Europe. Like, these things happen. We take communion together. We hear the word together. We worship together. Now, it looks different in all those places, but those elements are true. But that's church universal. The Bible also speaks about church local. And that's what I want to talk about today, church local. What does it mean for us as a local church, a covenant family of faith, to uh, walk in obedience and walk in life and joy for the glory of God and the joy of all people? So I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 2 together. And I'm going to really focus in on the second half of the, the chapter, but I'm going to read the whole thing because in, in, if you have any background in church, you've probably heard sermons on or you've maybe even memorized Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And, and for good reason, uh, it has one of the clearest uh, depictions of what it means for a person to be made right with God. And so we'll, we'll read that and then we'll continue on. So as I read it, I ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so we normally will, uh, and I've preached on this passage, and we'll, we'll normally stop there. Uh, and this is a very, very clear passage about how a person uh, gets, uh, a person who is by nature a child of wrath, a person who is dead in their sins spiritually, how because of the grace of God alone it is made alive by the Spirit of God when they hear the gospel. So, so the church goes out, someone shares the gospel, someone open, points them to Jesus, and the Spirit does his work, brings them from death to life, the Bible says he brings them from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son God loves. This is an amazing passage. We should all memorize this passage. But, but there is a danger in stopping there because Paul doesn't stop there. In fact, there's even a danger in the way uh, that, that we are affected by meology that, that we don't even know. 
We can come to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and see it almost exclusively through an individual's eyes. But the, in the Greek, the tenses there are plural. This is how the church gets rescued and redeemed. This is how the church, though they were dead, comes together. There is a, even a communal aspect to this, this view. It's a, it's a view of the, the vertical recon, reconcil, reconciliation between God and man. Theologians will call this justification. How is a person who is a sinner, a child of wrath, made right before the sight of God? And this is how, by grace through faith. And that's called justification. So in the moment that that you have trusted in Christ, you get the righteousness of Christ credited to your account. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. So you are perfectly righteous because of his righteousness in an instant. So, so in that sense, the, the ground is level. But then in the rest of chapter 2, Paul's going to switch to how the God, so that's how the gospel saves, that's how the gospel justifies. In the rest of chapter 2, he's going to talk about how does the gospel sanctify. So sanctification is a process. Justification is instantaneous. We have the righteousness of Christ. But sanctification is that process whereby the Spirit of God is forming and shaping in us an increasing likeness to the Son of God so that we become practically uh, what we are positionally. Positionally, we have the righteousness of Christ, but none of us are there practically. We still fall short. We still sin. uh, but, But hopefully, by God's grace, he is working in us and through us. And so in the rest of chapter two, he's going to show us what does sanctification look like? And he's going to show us that the way that sanctification happens primarily is within the context of the local church. So go back 28 years ago with me again. I understood justification. I prayed the prayer. I gave myself to Christ. I did not understand sanctification. I thought, well, if I do the right things, if I try hard enough, if I do all these things, then God will be more pleased with me. No, there is sanctification. And sanctification is a communal project. Look at verse 11. He said, therefore... Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So, So this is... He's just saying, here's the reality. Uh, apart from Christ, you Gentiles, which is the vast majority of us in the, this room, you had no hope in the world. You weren't part of the covenant people. You had no covenant promises. God didn't owe you anything. Uh, yes, he did. He owed you his wrath. That's all he owed you. And, and so uh, he's just saying, remember, that's who you were before you got this vertical justification. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And again, it's this language of reconciliation. That we are reconciled to God and then that we are reconciled to one another. For he is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in, the pl- in place of the two, so making peace. 
Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And so uh, just some historical context uh, that there is a, a massive rift, more than any other rift in our world even today, uh, between the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, what, what was going to happen? Were there just going to be two separate churches, two separate religions that were going to grow up out of this, this thing called Christianity? Or, or was there going to be something more? And God says, yes, the, the reconciliation, the peace that I gave you with me is going to then spread to one another. And he's going to push on this that part of our second sanctification, not, not just part of it, our sanctification is necessary in the context of community. And we're going to see some more illustrations of, of this. But here's the deal with the local church. You don't choose, you can choose what church you go to, but you don't choose who's in the church. And we can keep distance from each other. In fact, it would be easier in many ways to be holy to just go off to a monastery somewhere, right? Especially if it was one of those silent ones. Like, go there because people say stuff to me and it angers me. And, and, and I get upset. And, and, and now there's opportunities. That there's opportunity to be reconciled. But, but he presses this point. You have this amazing justification, reconciliation. He is our peace. He made peace by his blood. But it doesn't just end with me and God. It, it, it goes out to the whole world. This is why this is the ultimate answer for all the problems that we face in the world between uh, whether it's social justice or any other thing. The gospel is the only answer that can bring us together on that. It is the blood of Jesus that makes the one man, makes the two one, making peace, killing the hostility, it says. I love that imagery in verse 16. Killing the hostility. That seems hostile, but... It, it, it provokes an image in our head. He says, and he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. So in that context, he's just simply talking about uh, the, the Jews who were uh, heirs of the promise, the Jews, the heirs of the covenant, they were near, and then the, the Gentiles who were far off. But, but both of them needed peace with God and peace with each other. See, see, the religious thought, man, if I, if I do these things, if I, if I check all the boxes, then I'm going to earn my salvation. They're pursuing salvation through religious duty and works. And it was never enough. And the irreligious, the Gentiles, were, were like, I, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to go after my own way. I'm going to create my own system. And that's how I'm going to pursue salvation. And it didn't work. But there was near and there were far off. And, and that's represented in this room as well, right? Like some of you grew up in homes where the air of your home, I mean, they, they just had Caleb on all the time and you, you just uh, like, you, you, you pray for like 20 minutes before every meal and uh, you were homeschooled. So you didn't even know that there were such things as cuss words. Like you, you knew there was something in your heart that wanted to lash out every now and again. So you created your own fiendag, like, oh, and you got your own little hand signals, all those things. You just didn't know because you're like, man, this is the air. But so in the mid, like you had the Awana, any, any Awanas people? Okay, my kids in the front row had some Awana. You had the bat, but you probably had like all, you're looking like Patton rolling up in there with all the patches 
and at the end of the year, you got all the Awana's bucks, and you're just rolling like, look how righteous I am. Bam, give me that plastic toy. And you, you get that because you, rem- you memorize the whole Bible. And like this is, but even still, you weren't rescued. You weren't redeemed. And in, in the midst of all that, being near as you were, something happened. Like, like, like you heard a message or a friend shared with you or a parent said, hey, this is the gospel. And, and in that moment, your eyes were open. The scales fell off. Your cold, dead heart was enlivened by the Spirit. And you were welcomed in. You made peace with God. And you were into the family of God. Some of us were far off. <laughs> you did, a sentence in your home always included a curse word. Like, you couldn't complete a sentence without throwing something in there, right? Like, you never went to church. And Matt, Matt, maybe it was good that you didn't because you, your mom or your dad, like, they, they were passed out from the night before. And if they were up, it was dangerous for you. And so that, 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 yeah, that wasn't going to go. And as you grew up, you thought, man, I'm never going to go to church. That's a place full of hypocrites. Side note, that's true, but we'll get to that. Uh, so uh, I'm not going to go there. They'll just judge me, and, and I don't want anything to do with that. And so you've lived your life. You kind of lived hard. And, and in the midst of that, Again, a friend uh, who got saved or a family member or someone, someone from the church came and said, hey, you can have peace in your soul. God wants to welcome you into his family. And, and even against all your resistance, the spirit of God, overwhelming in love, opened your heart and mind and brought you into the kingdom of the son he loves. And this is represented in this room. And so those who were far and those who were near came in. And now we are one family. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? Luke 15 tells us, Jesus tells the story that there's a father with two sons. And one, the younger one is, is rebel. He goes off and, 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 and squanders his inheritance. Massive, massive offense uh, is, is feeding the like goes so low. He's feeding the pigs, decides to come back and wonders if he can be a slave in the household of his father. But instead, you know the story, the father runs, embraces him with grace, mercy, and love and says, come on in. We're going to throw a party for you. Here, put this ring on your finger. It's so good to see you. Uh, we're going to have a party. And so he was far off and he was brought in. But there's another brother he was near he was near the whole time he was he he was a nice dutiful firstborn and he uh, checked all the boxes and when he sees this party going on he's bitter and he's he's wondering he's like why why didn't you why didn't you ever throw a party for me and and the, the father's like what are you talking about everything i have is yours come on in come into the party and jesus ends the story there and it's kind of left hanging, like, well, what is the, what is the religious older brother going to do? And, and he leaves that hanging because he's talking to Pharisees, who he loves, who he wants, who are near, who have the word and promises. And he wants them to come in, and he kind of leaves it hanging. It's up to them. But what if he continued the story? What if, what if the brother was like, okay, Dad, you are good. I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to come into the party. And he comes in and celebrates. But what about the next day? The older brother and the younger brother still have to live together. I mean, wouldn't there be some opportunity for sanctification in that moment? Absolutely. If the older brother and the younger brother are to grow up and mature and become like the father, full of mercy and grace and love... 
Well, they gotta, they gotta live that out. They, they gotta forgive. They gotta be merciful. And this is what the church does. It does that for between Jew and Gentile. It does that between the races. It, it does that in individual churches. If we're willing to get close enough, we will wound each other. And in the wounding of each other, now we have a choice. Are we going to embrace the mercy and grace that we've received? Or are we going to hold on to our rights and demand justice? See, the, Jesus says the church isn't ancillary to your discipleship. It is central to your discipleship. You want to become like Jesus? You've got to forgive like Jesus. To forgive like Jesus, you have to be willing to be wounded and to be hurt. And so this is what Paul is getting at. He's saying, hey, those who are far off and those who are near, for through him we both have access to one spirit in the Father. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. So he starts to kind of describe who we are in the church as, as believers. Now, not all of us are believers in this room and, and you're just checking it out and uh, we're glad you're here. But if you are, it says you are a citizen. You're no longer a stranger and alien. Now, we don't get that language as much because most of us have spent all of our time in America as Americans. But you, but you start to go around the world and go into places and you realize, man, there are a lot of privileges that, that are afforded to us as Americans that are not afforded to the rest of the world. And the same was true in the first century. Like, this would have been a huge deal. Citizens have rights. Strangers and aliens have no rights. And so, at one point in the book of Acts, Paul is, is about to be beaten by this crowd in a Roman colony. And he says, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they all back up. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't lay another hand on him. He's a Roman citizen. He has rights. If we continue down this path, Rome's going to roll in here and kill all of us. And so they, they back up. And this is what Paul's saying. You're not a stranger. You're not an alien. You're a citizen. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not only that, he, it gets better than that. He says citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We were, we're members of the household of God. This, this is family language. So we talk about this is our faith family. That's why you don't just bail and on your, fa- your family. You don't just go away to find another church. If, if it's here or otherwise, get involved. Consider them family. Get deep in their lives. We are family. Again, we don't choose our family, but, but, but we love our family. We're invested in our family. We're brothers and sisters. Again, this is why we prayed this morning for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, members of the household of God. He goes on, and we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So God is doing something in the local church. He is building his church. And the foundation of that church, he says, is the apostles and the prophets. That just is shorthand for the word of God. So the apostles and prophets, by the Spirit of God, in the Old Testament and New, would write under the influence of the Spirit of God, and they would write the living word of God. And this is the foundation of the church. And it has to be the foundation. This is what the Reformers would call sola scriptura. That I have no authority in and of myself. Like, there's no, like, you have to test what I say in light of this word. This is why we want you to have a Bible. We want you to have eyes on the text. We want you to say, is what he's saying true? And we want you to wrestle with that. Because 
Because I could put this book aside and come up with some funny stories and keep your attention and do my debt is dumb series and we could all leave here, but there would be no transformational sanctification in that moment. It's built on the word of God alone. Sola Scriptura. This is and Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, this is an interesting word study, but Christ himself, Christ who is the word, he is the cornerstone, the most important piece, obviously. This is what we mean by, by being gospel-centered. Jesus is the cornerstone. The gospel is the cornerstone of everything that we do. So if it's not the gospel, anything other than Jesus as the cornerstone, we won't last very long. If we say, hey, we're going to be a church that's all about this, about worship music. That's going to be our cornerstone. Uh, It won't take long for us to disagree. Well, I like hymns. I like Hillsong. I like uh, whatever heresies out there. Well, you, you know, like uh, soon we'll, we'll, we'll begin to split and go into our own little camps there. Even really, really good things like, hey, we're going to be a church and we're, we're going to be so passionate about social justice and we're going to engage the injustices of this world. And the Bible says, and we're like, yes, yes, yes. And we're like, okay, and this is how we're going to do it and this is the problem. And you'll be like, no, that's not how we're going to do it and that's not the problem. And, and it won't take long before we get bifurcated, before we split in that moment because that can't sustain a church. Only the gospel Only the hub of the gospel, that that Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is what brings us together so that people that voted differently than you, people that look differently than you, people that uh, have different cultural values can all come into this room and we can take this cup and we can say, yes, it is the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus that unites us no matter what. And we can move on from there. It is the gospel alone that is the cornerstone of every healthy church. In whom, amen, there you go. How many of you still have three left? You got like four minutes, so let's, hey, my kids, that ain't right. We'll talk later. I ain't not right. I'm, let's, I'm looking at you, Abby. <laughs> so we, you got like four minutes left, so let's crank this up. All right, here we go. I, I got to do my part. There you go. Amen. Listen, you got like seven minutes left. Uh, okay, so. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together. So together we are being built up. Together we are built up into a dwelling place for, the, for God by the Spirit. There's this language that gets used often in the New Testament, but, but we are now being built up by the Spirit of God together, not individually, not, not on our own. We're not just a little stone in a field somewhere uh, that, that is a follower of God, but together these stones are coming together and the living temple, the, the place of God's power and presence is manifesting itself in the local church so, so that we don't have a Mecca. Like, like there is not a place where we need to pilgrimage for, for our faith and, and get more righteous. It, it would be awesome if we could all go to Jerusalem or go to Galilee and be like, look, Jesus walked on that water. Look, this is where the 5,000 were fed. Look, this is where the empty tomb maybe was. And like they, that would be an amazing experience. And in some ways that might help your faith. But there is no more power and presence of the Spirit of God there than is what is present in this room right now. That was an easy one. Okay. We have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit is building us together. Your sanctification is dependent on the level of togetherness you're willing to have. 
He's building us together to be a, a visible, tangible presence on the planet. So my question for you is, have you experienced this in the local church? Have you, has this been your experience? We've just looked at Ephesians 2. We could have looked at all the metaphors. But when you start to compare that with our experience in the local church, you say, man, these, these are, again, these are worlds apart. But I want to say for your growth and ours, for your joy and ours, you need to embrace your role, your role as a citizen of the kingdom of God and the responsibilities therein, your role as a family member in God's household, your role as a stone in the living temple of God. So that his love, his mercy for the glory of God and the joy of all people expands to the ends of the earth. So what does it look like for you in this season of your life and faith? I, I can't answer that for you, but I can say, give yourself to the church. Sometimes we wonder, what's God's will for my life? And really what we mean by that is, what's my will for my life and how do I get God on board for, with that? <laughs> like, like, how do we do that? Or what, what does God want me to do? He, here's God's will for your life. I guarantee it. God's will for your life is to grow in Christ-likeness. Therefore, God's will for your life is to plug yourself in to the local church. That's it. You do those two things. You worry, he can worry about the rest. And you will enter into eternity having become more and more like Jesus. Imagine if we embraced this vision of church that Paul puts forward to the Ephesian church in chapter 2. Well, he actually tells us what would happen or what does happen, what is happening if we do that. He tells us that in, in, in chapter 3, verse 10. In fact, uh, actually, I don't have it on the screen. Let me just read it. I liked how the NIV put it this way. Paul, it says this in Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. This is a crazy plan. But, but when God rescues sinners and they taste of the mercy of Jesus and, and, and you cannot, if you haven't done that, then you, you don't have the power to do the next thing. You, you, you become a, a vessel of mercy and grace to others. You, you forgive because you were forgiven. You love because you were loved. When, when the rulers and powers and authorities, the cosmic forces look and when the world looks in on a, in a group of people that should not do, have life together but do have life together, that should not have love for one another, but love one another. That should not have grace and mercy for one another, but have grace and mercy for one another because they first tasted that grace and mercy. When the world looks in on that, the, Paul says, it displays the manifold wisdom of God to the universe. We think too little about what is happening in our lives and in our church, but God doesn't. So, for the glory of God, the joy of all people, give yourself to the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, I, I pray that um, for any of those that would hold back uh, by grace through faith, they would uh, give themselves to your, your family. Whether it's here or another local church, Lord, I pray that you would use them for your glory and for the joy of all people. Lord, shape and form in us Christ and do that through our brothers and sisters on our right and left this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.